Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here. I hope if you're joining us online that uh, you had your, your TV or your phone turned up, and uh, I hope you are all stoked and hyped and ready to go, because we're in Matthew 21. So you got a Bible, turn to Matthew 21. If you don't, um, if you don't have it in your phone or a paper version, you just follow along. We're just going to be looking at four verses today, um, and so you should be able to kind of keep pace with us as we do that. Uh, while you're turning there... Uh, I got a couple things for you. The first one is this, is uh, can we give a round of applause for Rebecca for leading us today? She is going to be back up later as well to finish out the service, um, but she and many others have been so gracious to us in this transition season and uh, showing up taking a Sunday off from the church that they participate at, leave their church family to come serve ours, and, and just so grateful for so many people um, in our community that, uh, that just know that the church is bigger than this one building um, and that we're all on the same team together. So, so if you're in the room, you know, afterwards, give Rebecca a high five, give her a hug. Um, if you're online, you can uh, hit her up on Facebook and just tell her thank you for giving her time. Um, secondly is this. I don't have a lot of time uh, to go into this and not all the details because a lot of things have come together really pretty quickly to put a little bit of an urgency to this conversation. And we're going to communicate significantly more over the coming week to give you details. But um, we have an incredible opportunity in front of us as a church. And to understand the weight of the opportunity we have in front of us, I have to help you understand the burden that we currently carry. So uh, in about 2001, we as a church, Monmouth Christian Church, moved to this building. We didn't build this building. Um, we, we bought this building from another church. We used to be um, over by what, where Java Crew used to be. Here, here's going to be a really, if you're new to the community, it won't take long before you know where Java Crew was and all the newbies don't. So then you'll be, you'll be old townies in the town when you remember where Java Crew was. But over by Java Crew, we used to be over there. And uh, we bought this building, we came here, and uh, we took out a mortgage for it, we added some things, we did a massive renovation on our kids wing, we um, uh, added the modular buildings that are all over here that you drive around as you leave, did a lot of work, and uh, with that, we ended up with a pretty weighty mortgage. And over the last, since 2001, uh, we have paid a about... Um, depending on the interest rate, it changes for us every three years, as somewhere between $130,000 and $150,000 a year to be in this building. We currently still have about 16 years left on being in this building, which if you are a math person means that we still are going to make about $2.2 to $2.3 million in payments on a balance that is $1.35 million right now, okay? So that's the weight that I want you to feel as part of this church. Here's the opportunity. Um, we have people who are going to be signing a lease to come in to lease out a significant portion of that building over there. In, in making it available for the come and use that building, it's going to mean some sacrifices for us. We're going to have less square footage. We're going to have to multi-use space and all that kind of stuff. Um, we are going to be able to be without a mortgage payment in eight years instead of 16 we're going to save what will end up being in that 16-year period about $1.3 million in payments that would have been made. That's awesome, right? 
That's awesome, right? And, and just to think, okay, he, he, just do the math with me. Just think, in eight, nine years when we don't have mortgage payment, that's $140,000 a year that immediately becomes freed up to do whatever we want, we think God's calling us to do. 140000 that's big, that's big money, okay? Not only the $1.3 million that we don't have to pay over 16 years, okay? That's big money. He, here's, here's the... Here's the, where the rubber meets the road. This is what the challenge is going to be for the next two months. To facilitate that, we have to raise $30,000 before the end of the year. Okay? Now, I should have told you the bad news first. The bad news was this. The bad news is we actually have to come up with $60,000. Okay? Here's the incredibly good news. We have someone who doesn't go to this church who so believes in what this church is about and they live in a different state. I don't know that they have any relatives that have ever lived in this state, let alone our community. And they made a commitment that they would match dollar for dollar any money given towards this to raise the, the $60,000. So all we have to do is raise $30,000 to be able to put us in a position to where in eight years, we're debt-free to put us in a position where over the next 16 years, we save $1.3 million on our costs. So here's the deal. Starting this week, we're going to start rolling out how that's going to look. But I just want to give you the heads up today. I want to ask you to even begin today, begin to pray. If you have a family, talk with your family about what that looks like because I know, I know $30,000 is a lot of money. $30,000 is a lot of money. But in terms of investment, like if, if I told you you could give $30,000 and in eight years you'd get $1.3 million, you'd be like, you should be in prison, right? That's a Ponzi scheme that you should be in prison. But this is just God lining things up in a really incredible way um, for us to be able to have an opportunity. But it requires us to put some financial uh, stuff up front because here's one thing. Um, I don't know why I should say this because this is actually getting recorded. But it is what it is and I don't have a good filter. So... Um, <laughs> That modular building over there, turns out, it's illegal. Did you know that? Turns out that incredibly sketchy hallway that you walk down, if you've ever been in the other building, it is terrifying. If, if you, Halloween, here, forget a, forget a haunted house. If you want to be terrified, go in that other building, stand at one end of the hallway, turn the lights off, and in the distance, you'll see this exit sign, and you'll have flashbacks to every horror film you've ever seen. And then, for 20 bucks a pop, I'll even let you borrow my daughter. She'll stand in a hallway, down the hallway, and she can just walk out in the hallway, and you can see a girl with blonde hair stand in the hallway, and you will never step foot in that building again, right? So it turns out, it's not up to code. And the hallway is supposed to have an exit halfway down. In fact, the building manager inspector guy, when the architect went to go talk about the renovations, he's explaining, she brings these, these blueprints, and his name is signed on the blueprints because he approved the blueprints. And he looks at him and he goes, these can't be the final blueprints. She goes, well, they're the blueprints they have on record. These are the, and he goes, these can't be, they're illegal. They've, this has never been okay. There has to be an egress halfway through. There has to be an emergency exit halfway through, and there's not. And I signed these, so these can't be the final. There must be another company. And he was so convinced that they got in a car and drove over here because he was convinced the blueprints were wrong. Turns out there's not an exit, right? 
And so we got to do some stuff to get the building ready so it can be legal for them to come in and rent out the building. And then on top of that, this is just for free. Super cool. It's, it's child care centers coming in. Um, but in that process, we're also going to do some renovation and we're going we're gonna to create a counseling center to be in line with our heart and our posture that um, we think that the church should be a part of the conversation in mental health. And we're going to help facilitate having some local private counselors available um, over in part of that building. And it's going to be awesome. So there's cool things going to come. Cool things are going to come, but it's going to cost some money, and it's going to cost some sacrifice, and it's going to cost you some Saturdays and all that kind of some fun stuff. So here we go. You ready? You got your Bibles? Matthew 21. Here it is. Matthew 21, verse 23 is where we're at. When he entered, being Jesus, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders came up to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will, ask you the, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by the authority I do these things. The baptism of John was, was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say for men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, so here's, this is what we do, and we're going to do this today. We're going to kind of dig into the passage. We're going to look at some context. We're going to look kind of what's going underneath the surface, and then we're going to ask the question, what does a conversation 2,000 years ago, 10,000 miles away from us, have to do with us today? Okay, so if you haven't been here, um, this is a turn in Jesus's ministry. This is what we often call Holy Week or Passion Week. Um, this is the week leading up to Jesus's arrest on Thursday, his crucifixion on Friday, and his death on Sunday. Uh, most scholars think that this conversation probably happened on Tuesday. So if you remember, about a month ago, we did the triumphal entry. We had the conversation around Jesus' triumphal entry. He comes in, all these allusions to the king of Israel returning to his capital city. The people shouted, Hoshana, son of David, which means save us. Son of David, save us, right? All this, this king coming. He comes riding on a donkey, which is symbolism all throughout the Old Testament of the king coming back to his capital city. So that happens on Sunday. Then on Monday, Jesus shows up and he like chucks tables all around. Right? You've heard the story. Jesus gets angry, and we talked just last week about the things that Jesus gets angry about, that, that those are things that we should get angry about, and that it's good, and it is part of the good news of who Jesus is, that Jesus gets angry, and John tells us that he goes in the temple with a whip. Like, that's good news, because we should celebrate and rejoice a God who gets angry at injustice, who gets angry when the, over, when the overlooked and the oppressed are taken advantage of. We should, we should celebrate that, right? So that's, that's Monday, and then we come to Tuesday. And this whole week, there's been this change in Jesus' posture. If you read throughout the Gospels, um, Jesus is constantly, throughout the Gospels, up until this week, he's avoiding conflict, I mean, he enters into some conflict, but if you look, Jesus' general tone is the crowds begin to gather. There's one spot in particular where it says the crowds begin to gather and they want to declare him king. And what does Jesus do? He leaves. He goes somewhere else. Conflict begins to build with the Pharisees and tension begins to rise. And what's he do? He says to the disciples, he said, let's go across the sea. Let's go over there. When he heals people, right? 
He heals people. And then what's he say to so many of them? He says this. He says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what has happened. Don't tell them. Right? And so um, uh, commentators, scholars, they, they call it and they wrestle with. This is a question like what's Jesus doing? What's going on here? They wrestle with this thing that we call the messianic secret. Because for much of Jesus' three years of ministry, he seems to be hiding from the spotlight. As focus and attention rises on him, he steps further and further back. But when it comes to this week, when it comes to the Passion Week, when it comes to this last week of his life, he knows, he's told the disciples over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me, they're going to kill me, but don't worry, it's not the end, I'm going to race from the end. In this week, Jesus leans forward. And in a flip, almost every single time that Jesus can confront someone, he leans into it. Almost every single time that Jesus can create tension, he just leans over the top and engages. We're going to look over the next two months, we're going to look at all these conversations where Jesus is like purposefully leaning into the tension. So, so Jesus comes into the temple. You, you got to see it like Matthew sees it, right? Jesus comes in the temple and there are these guys waiting for him, which you would too. Like if you were a leader of the temple, and this dude just showed up the day before with whips, and he was flipping tables. Like, they're still picking up the dove cages that he tossed across the temple courtyard, right? They're still picking stuff up, and you would make sure that everybody knows and sees, hey, this guy, if he shows up, you need to, like, throw a flag up, throw a, throw a, uh, uh, something, like, raise your hand, make sure someone knows. And Jesus comes walking in, and he's confronted by, look at what it says in Matthew. This is, details are important. The, some of the most important thing is to ask the question, who and why, when you see details in Scripture. It tells us who confronts Jesus. It says this in verse 23. The chief priests, that was a little detail, a single consonant that's important. See that? There's an S at the end. It makes it plural. We're going to talk about it in a second. That's a weird thing. And the elders of the people. These are both titles, okay? Matthew isn't saying the chief priests and then a bunch of old people showed up. That's not what he's saying. These are titles, okay? So the chief priests, he, here's the thing. That's why it's weird. Here's the little detail. Um, according to Jewish law, there can only be one chief priest. There can only be one chief priest and he's appointed for the entirety of his life. So how is it that chief priests show up? We have to know a little bit about the cultural and political tension going on in Jerusalem, in Israel in this time. They're occupied by the Roman Empire, right? And the Roman Empire would most of the time, they'd give like local people that they occupied, they'd give them like enough leash so that they could not rebel. They'd be like, hey, like you guys can do that as long as you keep paying tribute and you keep sending soldiers, then we don't care. You do whatever you want, right? And Israel was one of those places. So they let them keep their government which is a thing called the Sanhedrin. It was a religious organization, but it was also their, their political government, right? And, and the, the, the top of the Sanhedrin was the chief priest. Now, the Romans understood the importance and the significance and the weight of the chief priest, that he could take this little corner of ancient Near East and, and he could either keep it really settled and smooth or he could make it the biggest pain in the butt for all of Rome. They could have uh, riots rise up and they could have revolts rise up. And so the Roman government made sure that they had input, they colluded with the leadership of Israel 
to make sure that they got to pick who the chief priest was. So this is why we have multiple chief priests. Because when a chief priest began to not do his job according to the Romans, to keep people settled, to keep revolts down, to go in line, to walk in step with the Roman government, they'd just replace him. All of a sudden, God would speak to some leadership person, and they would institute a new chief priest. And so we have, we're going to see in Jesus' trial, we have two chief priests. One's named Annas, and the other one, really awkward at family get-togethers, is his son-in-law, is Caiaphas. We have two chief priests. Okay? Now, the chief priests, another detail you need to know, the chief priests were almost exclusively, for the hundred years around Jesus' life, almost exclusively a part of a group called the Sanhedrin. Sorry, not Sanhedrin, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were kind of the liberal religious order of the Jews. They were the religious liberal political party. Okay? And they understood that to get by, they had to get along with Rome. And so they would, they would acquiesce to Rome. Okay, But the other people it says, it says the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the elders of the people was the Sanhedrin. Okay, stay with me. We're going to get in the weeds, but this is going to matter. This is going to be important. The Sanhedrin was almost exclusively the Pharisees. The Pharisees are who Jesus confronts most of the time because they were most popular among the people. The, the Sadducees were popular in Jerusalem, but Pharisees were most popular in all of Israel, and they were the conservative. Okay, so this is not... A, a political statement. This is just as best we can understand. Just think Pharisees are like Republicans and Sadducees are like Democrats, okay? Sadducees are, are liberal-leaning. Pharisees are, are, are conservative-leaning, right? Now, here's the thing. There is nothing that the Pharisees and Sadducees agreed upon. Nothing! There's nothing. They couldn't agree on how you did sacrifices. They couldn't agree on the terms for what was acceptable for divorce. They couldn't agree on how you honored the Sabbath. There was nothing. They definitely could not agree upon your relationship with Rome. Nothing. There was not a single thing that they could agree on. And yet, look, 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 look what Matthew says. Jesus entered and they come shoulder to shoulder holding hands to confront him. So it should make us ask this question. What was such a monumental threat about Jesus' presence that two, two groups of people who would rather see the other group become extinct than propagate any of their ideas? What, what, what two group of people had such vitriol for one another, such hatred for one another, and yet... This rabbi from Nazareth, this homeless rabbi from Nazareth comes walking in the temple and they all go, hey, <laughs> I hate you, but we got to figure this out together. What was it about Jesus that was such a threat, so dangerous? An I mean, the Romans, here's the thing about the Romans. The Romans allowed them to build the temple and then they actually helped build the temple. It's why it's called, the temple in Jesus' day, it's called Herod's temple because Herod um, helped build the temple there. But in process of building the temple, he built a tower right on the corner. If you ever see some reconstructions of the temple, you'll see in the corner, there's this tower that's as tall as anything else and it stands over the gate. It's taller than the gate, right? The reason that that was there is because that's a Roman guard outpost, 
so that the Jews, when they were in the courtyard, they would literally stand in the shadow. The Roman government, see, see this imagery that the Roman government wants them to see. The Roman government would be in their temple. Uh, the, the Jews would be in their temple, worshiping and celebrating God. The God of all creation, ruler over, omniscient, all-powerful. This is God in the shadow of the Roman government. That the Roman government would blot out the sun in their place of worship. What is it that makes Jesus even a greater threat than that Roman government? A Roman government that demonstrates over and over throughout history that they will eradicate people with no guilt. There are stories of, of, of just mass executions when anybody turns their face away from the Roman. What was it about this homeless rabbi from from Nazareth shows up and these distinct generational enemies join together to make sure that Jesus, well, it's this. Jesus was a threat to everything about the way they lived their life. Jesus was a threat to their traditions. Jesus was a threat to their economy. Jesus was a threat to their culture. Jesus wanted to upheave everything in their lives. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they, they wanted the temple. They wanted this, this grand symbol of God's goodness and his presence and his power. They wanted this temple where hundreds of thousands of people would flock from distant lands every single year. They would come hiking up the hill of Jerusalem to come to this beautiful and magnificent temple to worship the one true God who could only be rightly worshipped in their temple, in their place. They wanted all of the blessing of the temple and the presence of God without the Messiah. They wanted all the blessing without the burden of obedience. They wanted the hand of God, the gifts of God, the power of God, the provision of God, the protection of God, without ever actually having to bend their knee and to submit themselves to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They wanted the temple and all of its grandeur and all of its power and all of its prestige without the sacrifice of obedience. So Jesus, Jesus sees through their question pretty easily because I'm, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus is God and he knows stuff. And so he, he says this, this thing that maybe seems like vague and veiled a little bit, but it's actually pretty easy and obvious to see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is primarily concerned with exposing their, um, their disingenuousness, but he answers them straight up. Here, here's, here's how Jesus answers them, right? Let me read it to you again, and then we'll look at it. I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from, he from men? Here's, here's why. Um, John 1, I think it's John 1, 29. John the Baptist says this. He points at Jesus and he says, this is the Lamb of God who's come to forgive the sins of the world. So Jesus questions this. Like, what authority? John, who is the greatest 
prophet that you've ever seen, a prophet after 400 years of silence. The nation of Israel had never gone so long without the voice of a prophet speaking to them. This profound and powerful and, 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 and blessed and gifted prophet speaking powerfully the words of God. He's already told you who I am. Jesus, in his answer, is tying himself to the conclusion that you have to make about John. And, and he tells you, Matthew tells you why they don't want to make a conclusion about John. Because you know what John said to them? He says, what do you, what do you come out to the wilderness to look for? Well, what do you come For a show? For a production? For, to, for your ears to be tickled? No, 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 no. If you come out to the desert, you come out to repent and be baptized. Right? He calls even the religious leaders to a kind of submission, to a kind of obedience that they didn't want to follow. See, Jesus, Jesus knows the disingenuousness of their question because Jesus has not been unclear throughout all of his ministry. We, we read it over and over again. You can honestly not take, you can't take an honest look at scripture and not see Jesus' continuous claim that he is God, that he's Messiah, layered all throughout scripture. We just talked about it in, in, in the, the triumphal entry. That Jesus comes riding in as the king coming back to his capital city. That is the Messiah, the son of David, coming back into his capital city. The people shout and rejoice, Hosanna, save us. That's Messiah language. Over and over and over again. The, the, the thesis verse of the book of Matthew is this. It comes in Matthew 4, 17, and Jesus says these words. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, now um, when you see the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew, you can, you can swap it out with the kingdom of God. Matthew doesn't use the word God because as a good Jew, they're really nervous about saying God's name. And so he, he says the kingdom of heaven, but kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. Repent, change your ways, change the way you think, change your posture, change your position for the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, let me ask you a question. What wasn't here before Jesus said those words? And what is now here with Jesus saying those words? Jesus. Jesus shows up. You see, here's the thing. The kingdom of heaven is simply any place, any place. Kingdom of heaven isn't this place out there that you go to out in the skies and you float around on clouds. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is any place where God's sovereign rule reigns and is in full submission. That anytime we are in submission to God's reign as king of all of creation, we are actually bringing a little bit of the kingdom of heaven to that place. The kingdom of heaven is here, right? And those words are important because it's not just 2,000 years ago. That the same message applies to the church, that our rejoicing and celebrating is this message that for one and all, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of restoration and reconciliation and life and peace is here, that you, that me, that we can experience heaven here now if we bend our knee in submission to Jesus. Now, Jesus says this over and over again. He tells the disciples when they go out, he says, this is the message I want you to proclaim. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here, is at hand. There's one spot, uh, I think it's Matthew 12. Jesus is talking and he uses this language, but it's a little different conversation. And this is just for free. This is just a side note because I think it's awesome. Is, um, the, the, the Pharisees are critiquing Jesus and they're saying, oh, you cast out demons by Satan. You cast out demons by Satan. And Jesus says, 
That's stupid. He doesn't actually say that, but I'm convinced in my deepest being that he thought that, okay? And he says, he says, well, okay, well, if I cast out demons by Satan, how do your people cast out demons? Oh, it got awkward right there. And he, and he, says, he says, but if I cast out demons by God, he says that the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Now, here's what's really weird about this. I think this is awesome and just has weird implications as we think about it and how we live our lives and integrates like our spiritual life with our physical life. Okay, so, so here's what Jesus is saying. When I take this guy and I cast a demon out of him, when I, when I do a miraculous life-changing thing in him, the kingdom comes upon you. So, so here, here, you see this, Right? Jesus doesn't do anything to you. You didn't even invite it. You didn't even ask it, right? You didn't say, oh, I'd like healing. I'd like restoration. Here's what Jesus is saying, is when God works in this world on someone, in some miraculous way, there's shrapnel in the best kind of shrapnel. That the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Here's what that means if you're a follower of Jesus. That when you submit yourself to Jesus in obedience, that in some way, when you do that, when you give yourself an obedience to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and, and you, you live out the prayer that Jesus tells us that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that you're part of that conduit. When you live out 2 Corinthians um, uh, 5.17, I think it is, that says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, that when you live that out, that in some way, the kingdom of heaven doesn't just come on you, but it comes on your whole family. It comes on your whole household. That a little bit of heaven is torn open and God's blessing is poured onto your whole family. That in your workplace, that, that it's not just an in here thing. I, I heard one guy say, um, uh, he said that following Jesus is personal, but it is not private. That everywhere we walk, we should be shedding the blessing and goodness of the kingdom of God as we travel. Right? That it's not what the sermon's about, but it's important. It's beautiful. It's good. But Jesus is not unclear. He's saying this over and over again. He's saying that the kingdom of heaven is here, right? He makes no qualms about where he came from. He makes no qualms about where he came from. But the, the religious leaders, they wanted all the blessing of God, the temple, the honor, the power, the significance, the self-confidence, the self-assurance, the peace the beauty of God without the sacrificing, without the Messiah, without the king declaring allegiance. I think this conversation may be the most important conversation to America today. I think this conversation may be symbolic of what the wrestling is that's going on in so many of our hearts. There's... Um, there's a podcast I really love. Um, you should listen to it. It's really good. Unfortunately, it's just one season, but maybe if we all start watching it and then we start sending um, uh, harassing emails to the hosts, maybe they'll make a second season, right? Just say, God bless you, and then just write a bunch of... It's called This Cultural Moment, right? And this podcast has uh, John Mark Comer, who's a pastor up in, in Portland, and another pastor in Melbourne, Australia named Mark Sayers. And they are smart. And they just sit around and they talk. And here's the incredible thing about this podcast. It was actually recorded about four or five years ago. But if you listen to it now, it could have been recorded a week ago. 
because they tell you, like, I'm not making this up. You go listen to the podcast. They're like, here's what's going to happen in America. Here's, here's what's going to happen. Here's all the things going on underneath. And it just takes a little bit of stress, a little bit of tension on the markets. It takes a little bit of outward pressure. And here's what you're going to see happen in culture in America. And then it does. And it's amazing. But here's one of the phrases they say over and over again throughout this podcast is they say that one of the things that symbolizes American culture, no matter where you stand on any issue, is that in the ethos of who we are as a people, we want the kingdom without the king. We want the kingdom of heaven. We want a place, every single one of us, even if you agree on, you disagree on how you get there, we all want a place where people are loved. Where, where there's forgiveness and there's grace. We all want a place of healing and hope and everyone has a future and everyone has an important, significant role and that everyone has value and that everyone has a place in a community. We all want a place where there's peace. The Hebrew word that we're so obsessed with is so beautiful. This is word shalom. We all want our world, our nation to be this place of shalom, of rhythm and peace. But we don't want the king. We want his blessing. We want his grace. We want his hope. We want peace, the kind of peace that that only he can provide. But we don't want the king. It's the reason that our culture and so many of us are so enthralled and infatuated and obsessed with this Jesus man who talked about grace and forgiveness, who said the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more that showed the kind of profound love for the outsider and the overlooked and the oppressed, that that spoke of a way of being and living that was so beautiful and life-giving. Because we're we're people desperately trying to build the kingdom of heaven here on earth without the king. The Pharisees and Sadducees wanted the temple. They wanted the power. They wanted the significance. They wanted the notoriety. They wanted the people flocking to their temple. But when the Messiah, the one who came to fulfill everything that that temple stood for, stood amongst them, they didn't want him because he, he's costly. He's disruptive. He demands obedience and sacrifice. Sometimes he says hard things. In fact, the next couple of weeks, that's all we're going to read is Jesus just leaning into these hard conversations and saying really unpleasant, difficult things to us and to the people of the first century. See, here's, here's what I'm convinced. If I stood up here and we did a six-week series on, um, uh, if we did a six-week series on peace, Right? I bet that most of you could give me ahead of time. You could probably write out or come up with most of the verses that I talk about peace. And you could probably even give me points ahead of time. You could talk about the interconnectedness of of God's peace and trust and faith and how those things are, are interdependent upon one another. And when our trust and faith increases, that our peace in God increases, that when our view of God's sovereignty increases, that our trust in him as able to handle, you could probably find some really great biblical illustrations. You could find some really beautiful, awesome illustrations I could put on this table and I could have a little word picture. You could probably get like... If we did a test on what the Bible teaches about peace and how you have peace, you could probably get 94%. 
Say 94% because I know you guys. There's some of you that are going to burn the curve down, okay? <laughs> we could talk about, we could talk about, um, we could talk about what, what to do with your neighbor, how to love your neighbor, how to love the foreigner, or, or whoever that category is of that other person. And you could probably quote verses to me that I wouldn't think of what you're supposed to do of how we establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth. The problem is, is that without a king, there is no kingdom. Without a Messiah, there is no salvation. Without a king, there is no kingdom. Without the sovereignty and the might of a God who we bend our knee in submission and obedience to, there is no blessing, there is no life, there is no forgiveness, there is no freedom, there is no joy, there is no future. The Pharisees wanted a temple without a Messiah. So many of us want a kingdom without a king. So the question to us simply today is where is it that Jesus is calling you to bend your knee in submission so that the kingdom of heaven might come pouring over your soul in grace and freedom and wipe away shame and guilt and burden and bring life and joy to you and to splatter shrapnel of the kingdom of God to the world around you. What is it for you?